I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. James Tidwell on the show, the wine director at the Four Seasons in Dallas, and also the co-founder of the Texom event in, in Dallas as well. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. How are you? Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Where'd you grow up? Manny, Louisiana, which is in the northern part of Louisiana, middle of nowhere. So pretty close to Texas, though. Yes. 15 miles from the Texas border. What was that like as a kid? Different. Yeah, but I mean, especially at the time I grew up, but it was great. It was an idyllic place to grow up, lived out in the country, so had lots of freedom, very much enjoyed it. What was the family situation? Father is a preacher. Most of his family, especially the males, are preachers and builders. And then my mother's family were teachers. So I got a lot of instruction when I was young. But in a in an easygoing way or more in a like wrap the knuckles kind of way? Wrapped the knuckles early and then later chilled out a little bit more. And we, uh, we as you got taller and able to kick your dad's yes, ass. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as, I, I was, as I was able to defend myself, I, uh, I was better off. No, they were, they were great parents. They instilled a lot of, uh, I think, moral and, and ethical values in me that came from both of those backgrounds. And I really enjoyed growing up where I did. Sometimes I find that people who grow up in the South have extended families that they grow up with. Oh, absolutely. We we did. We were a typical Southern family. We lived on a hill, and my extended family lived in various parts of that hill or on various parts of that hill. I mean, cousin on one side and grandmother next door and great-great-aunt and great-aunt and uncle further down. So I had a lot of family around me at all times. What was your grandmother like? Oh, my grandmother was great. She She's an inspiration. Uh, was an inspiration. She's passed away, but she went to uh, university at a uh, early age. She graduated early from high school and majored in biology or in sciences. Went on to teach, actually taught some of her brothers uh, later in life and uh, really did a lot of, of unique things for that time and that, that place and became a teacher and then went into the administration of the school system and retired after I think it was 44 years in the school system and age 65 and then decided she wanted to learn to snow ski. So she took the entire family snow skiing for the first time when she was 65. Is there a lot of skiing in Louisiana? There's water skiing. We live not far from a major lake, but uh, no snow skiing, oddly enough. So we drove to Colorado every year, did a lot of traveling. Sometimes I find that families of teachers travel a lot in the, in the off season in the summer. We did. We traveled every summer, major trips, saw most of the U.S. by the time I was in high school or graduating high school. I think 40-something of the 50 states by that time. So it was a great opportunity for me to see the rest of the U.S. and realize that there was something outside my hometown uh, because not everybody from there traveled or had the opportunity to travel. So I felt very fortunate. Did you have those conversations where you felt like someone didn't really get out of the small town? Oh, there were definitely those conversations. Uh, there still are those sometimes if I go back and visit, but I, I don't think it's as 
prevalent now as it was then. I mean, it's just the internet and, and all the things that have opened up the world uh, to others. Even if you don't get to travel physically, you can travel in other ways. Part what, of what I like about wine. Where did you start with wine? <laughs> Little Rock, Arkansas. So every time the Soulmates decide to play the one up game, I kind of stop the conversation when it comes to, well, where'd you get into the business? And I say Little Rock, Arkansas. And they don't really know how to respond to that. So so it was a it was a good place to get into the business. So it was very non pretentious. And there's a lot of money there. So I worked at what was one of the best wine shops in Arkansas. And for somebody who was just the most non-pretentious, fascinating guy, had a background in accounting. and This is your boss. Yeah. You're not talking about yourself right now. No, not about me. (laughs) No, it was my boss. I was working. I was just the (laughs) most fascinating guy. A lot of people told me so. Well, there's been that too, but maybe not in the way you're talking about. Uh, but the, the gentleman was was great. His name was Lee Johnson. He was he was amazing. Why do you think he hired you? I still don't know the answer to that question. I walked in off the street and said, uh, I don't know much about wine, but I'd really like to learn and handed in my resume. And he said, I, I think we have a place for you. Hired me. What were you like as a young man? Nerd. Yeah. I was a nerd. But in the... In the- way that we think is cool like you're you're well not at that time i was a nerd before nerds were cool i missed that whole boat unfortunately otherwise i might be a techie billionaire by now but that didn't happen that wasn't that wasn't my generation of nerd uh but yeah in that way i was i had a lot of interests and had done a few different things by that point so i think he keyed into that and decided that he would hire me based on the fact that i did have some range of interest and you were into learning I was, yeah, that's that's a common theme for me. I think eternal student based upon my background. And so you're working at the wine shop and what goes on? Normal stuff, you know, it, it was a retail experience for me that I'm glad I had. I later moved to restaurant floors, of course, but, you know, the the retail experience was good for me. And as I said, there's a lot of money. So, you know, Arkansas was a great place to get into the business because did have the money it wasn't and it wasn't pretentious it it was a place where you could easily have conversations with people and it wasn't about the biggest or the best wine it was about what they enjoyed and at the same time we got a lot of very good wines into that store mostly domestic wines and and by far more new world than old world at that point Uh, so i wasn't introduced to european wines quite as much until later but a lot of times I don't think people think of Arkansas as a place with a lot of money. Oh, it's a huge amount of money. Is I that mean, true? Yeah, there, there's a whole branch of the Rockefeller family that lives down there, has been there for years. Uh, of course, the Walton Fortune is headquartered there. and there, There's a lot of money. The, the largest investment house off Wall Street, at least at that time, was located in Little Rock, Arkansas. So, a lot of money. And you started to like wine. Like it tasted oh, absolutely. good. Like you yeah. were into it, this idea. Yeah. yeah. I was I was cooking in restaurants in the afternoon or evening and working a wine shop in the morning. I'd originally gotten into the wine end of things to learn about what would go with food. If I was going to be a chef, I decided I need to learn wine to go with food. And oh, so, so you wanted to do cooking. Yeah. I was doing cooking first and learning about wine as a secondary, you know, hobby, I guess, at that point. And how did the cooking thing come along? Oh, it was great. I uh, was also working in one of the best restaurants in Arkansas at the time. It was a northern Italian restaurant in a time when northern Italian was not really a restaurant concept. Right. So the woman who had started it was, especially for for Arkansas, I think at that time, very much ahead of her time and had a great experience there. We we always did game specials being in Arkansas. So even though it was a northern Italian restaurant, we would do game specials and, and cook things that I only saw many years later in some bigger cities. So it was a great experience for me to get started in cooking and then went from there to the Coloring Institute of America in Hyde Park. What was that like? It's one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And phenomenal school. How did it help you out? Just the amount of, of information about the profession and the amount of learning that you could do there is, I think, unparalleled in the business. I did not live on campus. Uh, I already had a a degree from LSU. And so I'd done the college thing 
and decide I was going to live off campus. And every morning when I drove up to that school and, and got out of my car and looked up at that school, I was in awe every single day because there's just no way to absorb everything that you can access at that school. And so it was a beautiful learning experience for me. I met a lot of wonderful people. And I think it was a key to my training later with wine because not only did it teach me discipline because it is a school that requires a lot of discipline, but also it gave me a background in food that then helped me with wine. And where did you see your career going at that point? <laughs> well, I was, I was going to open a restaurant. I was going to be a chef and then open a restaurant. And I started working at a wine shop in Hyde Park while I was in culinary school called Liquorama. Uh, Maggie Gephardt, who is there, helped generations of aspiring chefs from the CIA pass their wines class in the well-regarded wine shop in the Hudson Valley. She uh, she hired me on there, and I took the wines class at the Culinary Institute, and I was so in awe of those and so so overwhelmed by the, the just everything about wine that I decided I was going to go into wine. I wasn't going to. Yeah, I graduated with a culinary degree, but I decided not to cook after that. But were your parents into wine? Did your family go to restaurants? Where did the decision come along to say like, hey, you know, I, I think restaurants is my thing. I don't I don't think preacher or teacher is my thing. Well, when I was when I was a child, we traveled a lot. And while we couldn't afford to dine in five star restaurants, I suppose we we went to what would be called, I guess, now authentic restaurants. We always sought out restaurants along the way that represented the place they were in. And I didn't appreciate that until later in life, but we, we would come back from vacations talking about where we ate a lot of times rather than what we saw. And so I think I did have that background and then went to the culinary Institute after going to Germany, I'd gotten a business degree in international trade and finance from LSU and through an organization I was in, got to go to Germany on a work exchange program for a while. And I met this crazy French boss there. Um, his wife was uh, German, so they had set up shop in Germany, but he was French. Loved to cook, loved wine, loved all food. He, he was the kind of person that we would drive through Europe in his old Citroen station wagon. It was a, he owned this, this small food service equipment manufacturing company. And we'd do sales calls in his old Citroen station wagon. And we'd drive through Europe and he would always know these little out of the way places. We were constantly taking detours to have like the best croissant here or the, the best versed and Dusseldorf or wherever we were at the time. And he realized that I was interested in that. So he encouraged me to go into to food. Moving back, I did. I decided to go into food. That's why I moved to Little Rock uh, where my parents were living at the time. They were in Arkansas. Went to the, to the restaurant and the wine shop. Started into food and wine in Little Rock. From there, went to CIA. And after graduating CIA, decided to stick with wine. And so where did that take you? Took me eventually to New Jersey, to a restaurant called Serenade, where James and Nancy Laird were great mentors. Uh, James is a phenomenal chef. Nancy has a history of working on Wall Street. And so that background of, of solid financial information and, and learning came in handy when time to run a beverage program because what I realized is that there's a lot to running a beverage program that doesn't have to do with is the wine good or is it something that I like? What are some of those things? Can you make money on it? Um, especially if you're an owner, but even if you're not an owner, if you're hired by someone, then you, you have to return a profit for them. So you have to be able to make money on it. You have to, you know, there's all sorts of logistical issues in supplying wine and sourcing wine and, Nancy taught me a lot of that. It was a great experience. And then after that, moved to Dallas. Woke up one day and knew I had to go to Dallas. And why is it? I think there were a lot of uh, subconscious factors to that. People don't believe that I just woke up one day and said, I've got to be in Dallas. But I knew that was the case. I'd been looking at opportunities in various places. I'd, I'd left Restaurant Serenade and done the WSET diploma. Finished half of that. And was looking for my next opportunity and realized that my family was not too far from there. I had friends who were there. My roommate from college was from there. So I knew the city fairly well. And there were opportunities there. So I 
went down and interviewed with Four Seasons and interviewed at the Art Institute to teach their beverage class and took the job. So you moved from New Jersey to Dallas and there was no girl involved. No, no girl involved. Only a job. <laughs> Two jobs, as a matter of fact. So you'd thought about Texas as a place you wanted to go. Not particularly. I'd been looking a lot of places because I realized I could go anywhere I wanted at that point. And somehow synthesized subconsciously that that was where I needed to go because I literally woke up one day and said, I've got to be in Dallas. And what year is that? It was 2002. Left New Jersey July 4th of 2002. What was the scene like in Dallas? That time there was, to give an idea, not that these are necessarily the be-alls and end-alls, but to give a benchmark, there was one master soul man in Texas, and that was Guy Stout in Houston. I like that guy. He's, he's a great guy. Not yeah. to appropriately name named. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Appropriately named. But uh, there was one master soulmate there, and and I don't know, there might have been one or two people who had passed the advance. So uh, the scene. But Paul Roberts had passed, but he'd left, right? Paul Roberts had passed. He had left Cafe Annie to go to uh, Thomas Keller's restaurants just after he passed. And so he wasn't there at the time. Uh, it was Guy Stout, and, you know, Texas being what it is, Guy Stout was four and a half hours away by car. So trying to study for anybody who was taking exams at the time, trying to study was difficult. Drew Hendricks was in Houston at the time, shortly thereafter moved up to Dallas. And so he and I started studying together. How did you meet? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> a friend of ours kept telling us we needed to meet each other, a mutual friend. And, and then by chance, we both were judging the Dallas more, what was then the Dallas morning news wine competition. And, got put on the same panel by Rebecca Murphy, the owner of the competition at the time, and then realized that we were the, each the person that our mutual friend had said we should meet. So we had a good time. There was another master or a master sommelier on the panel with us. We weren't master sommeliers at the time. And Drew and I seemed to agree on everything and disagree with, with the other person on everything. And it established some really good relationships. We've joked about that ever since, but it, it was a great way to meet each other. Because you guys are co-founders of TechSom, friends, and you know significant business partners, I yes. believe at this point yeah. it's been ten yeah. years, right? Uh, Eleven years of TechSom in August, and we've known each other for longer than that. So yeah, Drew's like a brother. What's he like as a person? Drew, uh, extroverted uh, for sure. I think that's part of the reason we work well together. I'm more introverted, not shy, but more introverted. Drew's extroverted, uh, incredibly smart. He's an incredibly intelligent person. And yet down to earth and funny. You met and then uh, you guys started studying together. Yeah, we started studying together and we're studying with Paul Bottomer, who's another good friend of ours from Dallas. He, he had moved to Dallas about the same time and worked at a very famous restaurant, the mansion on Turtle Creek. So we started studying together and all passed the advanced soulmate exam at the same time in 2004, in August of 2004. And then... At that time, you had to wait a full calendar year to take the master's, and the master's exam was given in February. So for us, that meant almost a year and a half. We wouldn't be eligible till uh, February of 2006. And it was in that period that I'd been contemplating doing a Four Seasons Wine and Spirits Professionals Weekend uh, to do something as a signature event for Four Seasons. And Drew had been wanting to do a soulmate competition. While Four Seasons wasn't necessarily interested in, in doing it themselves, uh, they allowed me the opportunity to create something with Drew. And uh, that's how Texom came about. We put the two ideas together, wanted to host it at Four Seasons, and I'll never forget walking into the director of finance's office and saying, Drew and I have an idea. And he said, okay, well, tell me about it. And I told him, he said, well, do you have any numbers worked up? And I slid this one page budget across the table to him how he ever signed off on that and allowed us to do that four seasons i don't know but he uh, he allowed us to give it a try there's no motivation like being thirty thousand dollars upside down with your employer to uh, make an event a success so we did well enough the first year to do it again because that seems like they gave you a lot of rope i mean they I did they they still do well, I, I think that's one of the keys to to my career at Four Seasons. I've been there 13 years, which I think is an eternity in this business. <laughs> Most people don't, I, I agree with don't you. do that. And 
one of the keys to that is that we have a very good relationship and, and I can be very honest with four seasons and they're very understanding and they have allowed me a lot of freedom. What's the basis of that? I mean, where did that understanding start? Trust, but, but trust takes time. You know, the, the GM, uh, Craig Reed, who's one of the great hoteliers that I know and is now uh, CEO of Auberge Resorts, was the GM of our property at the time. And when I first arrived, they wanted somebody with wine knowledge. So I actually took a step back from management to become a server at the restaurant. And he had said, there will never be a sommelier at this, this hotel. And yet he was the one who ended up signing off on my taking the position after I'd been a server for a while. And so you got the, the good blackmail yeah. pictures on him? Is that what happened? No, no. <laughs> I don't know if there are any of those with him. He's a... He's a stand-up guy, but you know, it, it was it was just a matter of doing the work. And and I think that sometimes gets lost in, in our business nowadays because it is a, a bit of a glamour profession at this point. But it was doing the work. And he signed off on me taking the soulmate position after I've been there about six months or nine months and have been have been there ever since. What did that work look like? It was a trust aspect with a guest, certainly. So there was a lot of guest input on that and making sure that our guests were taken care of. There was a, a reasoning of the wine program to him, you know, uh, coming up with a solid plan for the wine program, making sure I communicated where we were going and why, and then proving the financials on it, which the rest of it, the idea of particular selections, things like that, they really didn't get into that was left up to me and it has been ever since. And so I think it was because of all of the other things that I'm allowed to run the program as I see fit in terms of selections. Sometimes I think we've seen other people who want to do that the other way around and sometimes it works. But for me, it was establishing the trust of I'm going to run this in a financially sound way. I'm going to run it in a way that, that satisfies our guest, And then that allowed me to, do the rest. And why did you pick the Four Seasons in the first place? That's a legendary hotel group. I mean, just the, in terms of luxury hotels, it's legendary, especially for service, hospitality oriented. So it was really the only place to, to go for me. So 13 years there at the Four Seasons in Dallas, as you said, you pick all the selections but you want to be very clear that the guest gets taken care of. What does the guest want in Dallas? That's changed over the years. Uh, I think somewhat unjustly, the the guest in Dallas was stereotyped as only wanting Chardonnay and Cabernet from California. And those are great wines, but that wasn't all that people wanted. And it's changed a lot over the years. And certainly Texas has changed. How so? A lot more experimentation, a lot more. And, Part of this is just access to information. And I would like to think that Texom has helped with that, but certainly things like Guildsom for the Solmes have helped with that. And then just access to information by the consumers as well. And so it's opened up a whole world and, and people are experimenting a lot more with different types of wines. And so I think at this point, especially where we are as a resort, uh, we're an urban resort, so we're not in downtown Dallas. We're in Irving, uh, not far from either Love Field or DFW, two major airports. We have two major airlines with hubs there. We get everybody coming into that hotel. Literally anybody could walk in. It could be rock stars. It could be titans of the business world, major sports figures, because we host a PGA tournament there as well. We have a huge sports facility and we have a, private club associated with the hotel as well. So we get everybody and that wine program has to reflect it. It's a very hard wine program to run in my opinion, because it, it has to reflect a little bit of everything. So you're still trying to serve a wide group of people because sometimes yes. here, you know, in New York, sometimes people are like, you know, this is what we do. We do this right. thing. And if you'd like that, then feel free to come here. If not, the, there's some place that does something else down the street and you should go there, you know? Oh, and those are absolutely valid, especially in the places that you're talking about, and especially in a city like New York. As I said, we're an urban resort in Irving, Texas, so we don't have a lot of restaurants around us, and our restaurant is the only major restaurant on the property, so we do have to have a little bit of everything. Uh, this goes back to knowing the business. 
could we do a specialty restaurant that had very limited selections of a of a unique product you know whether it's a place or grape certain grapes yes absolutely but it, it wouldn't fit with what we're what we're doing as a resort because we have one major restaurant if people are staying for five days on property for a conference or or other things then that's limiting and so we do actually have to have something for everyone but at the same time that probably implies a fair amount of selections where in the general market you often see lists getting smaller you probably have a pretty big list to accommodate all those different needs i would imagine i think so as compared to some lists it's it's not as large but we had about 650 selections we i have cut it down in the last year or two to about 475 below that and we start getting inquiries and, and why we don't have certain products simply because we also have a conference center attached to us and when you have less or fewer selections than that you don't cover enough areas and enough price points for people who are having major meetings because they'll they'll also choose off of our restaurant list for specialty meetings so we have to have something, as I said, for everyone that includes price points and to cover all of those types of, especially classic regions and price points, you have to have a certain number of selections. Still sounds like a lot, but when you start utilizing it, it actually isn't. So almost 11 years of Texom, how mm -hmm. has it changed over the years? <laughs> wow. A lot. Uh, the first year was 88 people probably in one room for two days very little outside of that uh, it was it, it, so Texom is two days of seminars really that's what it's the core of Texom is and a wine competition or a uh, sorry a soulmate competition that runs in the background and so that was the core of what we did and that that's where it started 88 people in a room two days we alternated between learning seminars and tasting seminars. And then on the Monday night, because it's a Sunday, Monday conference on Monday night, we had what was what we possibly mistermed the grand tasting the first year, because it was, I think eight tables of, of, uh, wineries and one winery's wine sat on their table in a box all evening because we were too busy to pour it. And their representative never showed up. But it wasn't a box wine, right? It wasn't like no, Carlo it wasn't a Rossi. box wine. No, it was actually <laughs> wine with a cork in it, sitting in a box all night long on the table because nobody had time to pour it, and their representative did not show up. So it's grown from that, and uh, and as another measure, this is this is an interesting measure from a hotel perspective. Hotels measure conferences, and one of the ways they measure it is room nights, and so it's the number of nights that you were there times the number of rooms per night. The first conference we did had 10 total room nights. So basically it was four master soulmates staying for two nights each. And we had four master soulmates as the first one. We now have 900 attendees. We take up close to 2000 room nights at the hotel over the week. We've grown from the two days of seminars, which are still remain to having hospitality suites and tasting breaks and all sorts of other opportunities for evaluation of wine. And we have, um, probably 65 speakers now, but even from the beginning, you were bringing in people from out of state to come talk. Yes, absolutely. That was one of the keys to what we were doing is that we want people to see that Texans, especially the Texas wine community, the professionals who serve wine, were interested in what was going on in the outside world. Because as I said, it, it was a bit stereotyped at the time. And so we wanted people to see what was going on in the state as far as interest. And we also wanted people who were in the state to be able to see from these people we were bringing in from outside what was going on in other places and get it firsthand. So that was one of the keys to Texan from the beginning. It still is now. Texom's grown to be far more than a Texas conference. I think we had people from 36 different states and 10 countries last year. So it's an international conference at this point. Because when you say Guy Stout was the only master sommelier, he was four and a half hours away. It sounds like what you really wanted to see was more expertise in the region for people to learn from. We did. 
And now we have eight master sommeliers in Texas, I believe, uh, spread amongst Austin, Houston, and Dallas. Guy Stout was instrumental in getting the master sommeliers that we had to the first Texom. Uh, one of those was Fred Dame, who took up the cause, believed in what we were doing, and went out and advocated for it. And Fred Dame's fairly associated with the quartermaster sommeliers. Yes, he is. He's the gentleman who brought the quartermaster sommeliers to the U.S. and uh, then uh, was instrumental in founding the Guild of Sommeliers. And the Guild of Sommeliers had not been had just been founded when we started Texom. So, grown up together in, in a lot of ways, and we've been supporters of each other. The Guild is a is a co presenting sponsor of Texom now, and I think that's the most recognizable uh, validation that we have of what's going on with Texom is that our co-presenting sponsors are Society of Wine Educators, Guild of Sommeliers, Quartermaster Sommeliers, and the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. So our co-presenters are four of the major certification education bodies for wine in the country, possibly in the world. Fred, fairly early on, recognizes, hey, there's these two interesting guys doing some work in Texas, and he floats you some support early on. What did he see in you at that time, do you think? I don't really know. Perhaps he just saw two guys who were willing to step up and do something that hadn't been done and take a risk. I don't know. I I think there are a lot of people doing that now, and I I applaud everybody who's stepping up to help advance the industry and take risks that they are. At that time, I think that's what Fred saw, though, was that we were willing to do something we hadn't, Taking the master sommelier exam, even at that point, we were between the advanced and the masters, and we decided to do something that hadn't at that point been done. And I think he recognized that. And what's Fred been like to work with in terms of a sponsor, mentor type of guy? What's he like? Oh, he's great. Uh, he's not afraid to to let us know when we're disappointing in terms of what we're doing, but I, those times are so few. Fred's been a huge supporter of the conference and wine competition we now own and all the things that we've done. Fred's been one of the great mentors we've had. So what pushed you in the direction of going in the quartermaster sommeliers as opposed to doing master wine? Because you had been at the WSET taking your diploma and it sounds like you made a different shift into maybe a different. Well, that was Fred too. (laughs) He's, he's a very persuasive person. I knew a wine writer in, in Dallas. She's far more than a wine writer. Actually, she's one of the great wine people in Texas, Diane Teitelbaum, who passed away this last year. And she called me one day as I was studying for the second half of the WSET diploma. And she said, James, do you know who Fred Dame is? And I said, yes, Diane, I know who Fred Dame is. And she said, well, he's going to be coming over in a while and tasting the Gaia wines with me because he was working for Paterno at the time. Would you like to come over? Yeah, I would love to come over. So I went over and Tasted wines with about six or seven other people who were there. And at the end of it, Fred said, uh, Mr. Tidwell, have you have you taken our courses? And I said, well, I've taken the introductory course. And he said, I think you should take the advanced course. And I said, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And he said, no, you are. You should apply. And, you know, gave me a, a speech that I've heard him give others. But I will tell you, it doesn't mean any less for that about what a great soulmate I could be. It inspired me. I applied, uh, started studying with Drew, and that was the shift from planning to go to the Master of Wine route to going the Master of Somebody went all in on you, basically. Yeah. Somebody, somebody yeah. put chips in the middle of the table and said, hey, I think this pot belongs That's to exactly you. exactly what happened. And you know, there are several people in my life who've, who've done that, who've said, you know, I believe in you, and... I believe in what you're doing, and I think Drew and I both have been very fortunate in that. So it couldn't have always been uh, fun times along the way. I'm sure there were some hard moments getting Texom going for over a decade. What what were some of those? There have been all sorts of things. Flooded ballrooms from rain the night before the conference started, um, worrying about money. The conference has always made money, but we don't take any money out of it never been our goal and so what we do is fold the money back into the conference i like to tell people we take the amazon approach and fold all our profits back into the company it makes it sound a lot bigger than we are but in reality we want to improve the conference every year and so we always plan things in 
order to hopefully improve the conference. But, you know, you always have to worry about budgets with that. So there's always planning those types of things. Trying to get wines in. Trying to get wines into Texas is not an easy thing. And so that's always a bit nerve-wracking. But in reality, most of it has been a great journey. Drew, Drew did say there was a turning point, though, about year six where I started talking to him the whole conference instead of uh, – Instead of stopping talking to him about halfway through, <laughs> because we would uh, we would get to a point where you know, with any event like that, there's last minute adjustments that have to be made, and you know, like I said, he's like a brother. So at some point, we'd we'd have an argument, and we'd quit talking for a while, and then it would be all right afterwards. But I think about year six, we we were okay, we were good, we knew where we were. But you found there was a receptive audience there in terms of people who wanted to attend this conference. There were people who were interested, younger people. Oh, yes, from the very beginning. And we knew there were. That that was the impetus of the conference, was that we knew there were people out there who were interested in this. And part of it being Texas being ge- geographically large, we didn't have an opportunity. I mean, you guys in New York, it's such a great opportunity because you have density. You have a core. You're saying here. I'm not very smart. What's you're, that? You're saying I'm dense. <laughs> okay. That's a whole different subject, but you have population density here. How's oh, that? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I'm a little slow. Let, right. So. Let, me, let me get that. Let me get that right for those who are slow. Um, but no, population density, where where you see each other all the time. And you get to talk about the wines and you get to see wines on a almost daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day at tasting simply because there are so many influential people here in Texas. We have three, possibly four very distinct markets that are hours apart, no matter how you travel. And so it wasn't always easy to get that kind of nucleus going in Texas where producers would would want to come because they, they would have to cover three different markets to, to cover Texas. And so Texon provided an opportunity for the Texas market to get together and then for producers to have something of a one-stop shop with regard to Texas influencers and Texas sommeliers. Because and now it's, it's gone, gone even beyond that to, like I said, national and international. Because it's probably a chicken and the egg thing. Like the buyers have to want the wines to be brought in and then also the people have to realize there's the interest. Like the suppliers have to realize there's the interest to have it be brought in. So they kind of help each other out, but it has to be both, right? It does have to be both. And, and it was a question of which was going to happen first. And it's hard to get the supplier interest if they don't see that there is a group. And so we had to bring a group together that was large enough to be visible. And I think that's what Texom accomplished. Other groups have done it too. I mean, there's, you know, several other groups in Texas have done that. So it's great. How would you sum up those four distinct parts of the Texas market? I mean, what, what are the differences? I don't know myself. So, well, the the three markets that are traditionally talked about would be Dallas, Houston, and then Austin and San Antonio together. Dallas is probably the most traditional of the markets, but beginning to experiment a lot more and certainly has in the last few years. Houston, uh, well-moneyed, know the classics, but uh, willing to spend a lot of money on, on those collectible lines and also uh, know some of the more cutting edge, higher end producers. And then Austin is by far the most experimental of the three markets. And yet at the same time is probably overall a lower price point market for wine. At least there's some great wine that's sold there. And those are, I hate to to really say it that way because those are broad generalizations that don't always fit, but that's generally how it's looked at. And there's not a fourth market. I thought you said, well, San Antonio is sometimes split out as a as a fourth market itself, and uh, probably somewhere between um, Austin and Houston in terms of its selections. But there's a fair amount of wealth in some of these places in Texas. There's a lot of wealth in all of those places, all of them. And there's probably a fair amount of wealth in the South, right? There is. Uh, you know, <laughs> starting in the business in Arkansas showed me that that there's there's wealth in places you don't expect it. And there's interest in wine in places that I'm not sure we always give credit to in the business. Uh, Oklahoma, I think is an up and coming market and there's a lot of interest from sommeliers and 
retailers there in terms of finding new wines and getting in wines that they don't have. Uh, there's a lot of money in Oklahoma as well. Fossil fuels keep Oklahoma and Texas economy pretty buoyant. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in Oklahoma as well. And those people probably feel more comfortable coming to Texas than going to something on the coast. I bet it seems more similar for them. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Texas is, of course, center of the country uh, for the most part. And there is a bit of a difference between the coast and the central part of the country, of course. Uh, with the, all the ports and the access on the on the coast and the population density, as we've talked about, I think there are wines that are more difficult to get in the center of the country, but it doesn't mean they can't can't be had, nor does it mean there's not interest in them. And unfortunately, I think sometimes there's a stigma about a lack of interest in the center of the country as to um, new and different types of wines. I find that changing. I'm not sure it was always the case, but I, I find that changing for sure. You think it's kind of almost a rude thing to say, to say that, you know, sum up Texas as people who just like Cabernet and Chardonnay. I think it's simple to say that. I think it's too simple. You know, I grew up in a small town in the South and I've been asked uh, by quite a few people about writing a book about the way I grew up in, in my town because there, there were some quirks to it. Um, at the same time, I've said I don't know how to do that without um, without playing into what a lot of people do nowadays, which is making fun of it. And I don't want to make fun of my town because my hometown's a great town and, and it's as rich in cultural heritage as anywhere. And I feel the same way about wine, that in the center of the country, especially, there are rich cultural heritages. There's a lot of culture. It may not be the same culture that's on the coast, but there is a lot of culture and I think it's simple, too simple to just say, you know, people aren't interested. That's not the truth. And one of the things that I've seen that has seemingly grown up around the same time and is also part of a, what's on offer at Texom is the Texas wines themselves, wines that are made in Texas. This is true. And much more so than in the beginning. In the beginning, we really didn't have much Texas wine representation at all. And in the last few years, that's really come along. Texas wine market has been a fast-growing market, and I don't necessarily mean in terms of volume, though that's true too, but in terms of quality. There are some people who've been making great wines in Texas for many, many years. I respect anybody who tries to grow grapes in Texas. It's an incredibly hard place to grow grapes, but at the same time, when it pays off, it is really good. Uh, you know, now there are articles out about, is this the next California? And I'm, you know, I'm happy to see that. And yet it's, it's a little bit surprised that some major press figures have caught on to that. I'm not surprised that the wines are showing that well, because the Texas wine market has gone from, quite frankly, some winemaking was dirty and by dirty i mean just not not unhealthy but rather the wines didn't smell and taste very good necessarily due to some winemaking challenges to wines that are beautifully clean up there with some of the best in the world and we found great varieties now they're growing very well in texas tempranillo a lot of the rhone italian spanish varieties uh, that are growing very well there and I think that's made all the difference, you know, and it's attracted more people into the business. There's been more sharing and more learning and it's just been good all the way around. One of the things I've noticed about Texas wine is that it seems just from a casual study of it on my part, that it has embraced more of those either Mediterranean or warm climate grape varieties than has been the case in some of the classic regions of California, perhaps because land value is less. Like they can experiment more with these kind of non-Cabernet grapes that are maybe more warm climate friendly. Sure. Well, land prices are, are one part of it, I think. Differentiation is part of it, just like the fact that a lot of restaurants don't want to have the same wine that a retail store down the street or another restaurant down the street has. How do you compete with California on Cabernet and Chardonnay? I don't know that that's a worthwhile endeavor, though there are some very good cabs and chards being made in Texas. But it's a point of differentiation as well. And then the grapes grow well there for the most part. I mean, we're looking at things like Vermentino and Montepulciano, 
Aglianico, certainly Tempranillo and Viena and Roussan, all of which are producing excellent wines there. One of the things about Texom is that it's seminars and education, but also there's a sommelier competition attached to it. Yes, there is. There's a sommelier competition that currently is open only to Texas sommeliers. And because Drew, myself, and two of the other sommeliers in Texas had passed the advanced course at the time, and we wanted to make sure that we weren't competing in our own competition, uh, we made the rule that you could not have passed the advanced course uh, of the quartermaster sommeliers. It was, it's just one benchmark. But the original exam was set up to be somewhat similar, I guess, to the advanced exam to give people an idea of what they were getting into. Because at the time, 11 years ago, people were studying for the advanced exam, but they didn't really know what they were getting into. And Drew and Paul Bottomer, Lonnie Hine, and I had experienced it and we had passed it. So we wanted to give an opportunity to people to see what they were getting into. And we wanted Texans who were going to that exam to show well. Again, building the community. Right, building the community and showing people in the outside world that there was something to respect there and something to look at. And so we took 25 applicants uh, that first year. We've kept it at that number ever since. Uh, So we'll take applicants for the exam, and it's a theory service tasting exam. No longer really uh, reflecting the advanced necessarily, but certainly a difficult exam. Difficult competition. Sometimes I have an idea of what I kind of assume or think of as New York wine service and yes. also California wine service. Is sure. there a style of Texas wine service? Is there a certain thing as Texas style? I don't know that there's a particular style in Texas that's any different from California or New York. I think that there's been a learning curve because, as I said, people were studying but didn't really understand what some of the principles where they were they were into and so got a little little ahead of themselves in terms of trying to take the exams but that doesn't happen anymore there's so much access to information there's so much cross-pollinization from new york to california and in between that i I don't really see a distinctive style difference no i think it's high quality wherever it is honestly who have been some of the young people that have come through that competition that you've watched their careers flourish Craig Collins, now beverage director for Elm Restaurant Group, which has five, I believe, restaurants in Austin. Mark Sayre uh, won our competition, who was uh, beverage director at Four Seasons Austin and is now with Elm Restaurant Group. Scott Oda, another great sommelier who uh, won the competition, is also with that group. So they've got three spectacular wine people there, actually more than that, but those three for sure. The other one's Devin Broly, who is, gosh, I don't even know his title now. He keeps getting promotions at Whole Foods. I think he's one of the two global wine buyers for Whole Foods at this point. And then June Rodel, who's, she's amazing. She's a rock star. She's been one of the people that I've most admired in terms of her decisions to move to new opportunities, because I think there's a lot of job hopping that goes on in our business, sometimes wiser than others. But June has made some very strategic decisions about where to go and has opened at least three major wine programs in Austin that have been nationally recognized. And uh, she does a phenomenal job. She's very, uh, she's kind of the major domo of Texom as well. She makes sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to at Texom. So she's but, great. But all those people work in Texas today. Is- all those people work in Texas today. Uh, Dylan Proctor came through the exam, who's now with Treasury Wine Estates. Uh, he did the exam the first year. Uh, there have been several others. Do you see Texas as an eventual stomping breeding ground for the entire country? Or is this going to stay mostly within Texas? Well, some of the sommeliers have moved out of Texas, so certainly that's that's a possibility. At the moment, the exam is, or the competition is only for Texas Soulmates. Texom as a conference is open to anybody, but the Soulmate competition is only open to Texas Soulmates at the moment. We are going to expand that. We're just trying to figure out how to manage that, and it will probably be a regional expansion. We don't ever want to be national. Guild Som does a great, Northern Guild of Soulmates does a great job of running their top Som exam around the country, and Drew and I have both been on the board of 
the Guild of Somme, so we support that fully. And we don't want to create friction or any more uh, fragmentation in the, in the wine community. And so we'd like to do something that is regional more than national. But picks up some of the markets that we've talked about. Oklahoma is certainly a market that we feel is relevant and, and ready to do something more. And so we'd love to have some of the sommeliers from there compete as well. So I'm not around Texas all the time, so I may have missed it. But why does it seem like there's not a lot of interface with the Chicano population and wine in Texas? Oh, there is. We have some major, major wine retailers in the south of Texas that do huge amounts of business. And some of that is with the population in Texas. And then some of that is uh, Mexican nationals who fly over, load up on all the best wines they can get and fly back. And so there, there's a multi-level interaction, I think, in the business. We have some great sommeliers who are Chicano, Hispanic. You're seeing more Chicano mm-hmm. sommeliers coming mm-hmm. up. Is it going to be the case one day that Texas sommeliers are going to be all over the country? Are we going to look around someday and say, oh, yeah, that guy came up through the the Texas? One would hope. One would hope. I I would love to see that. I think you're already seeing it. There have been a number who've moved. Eric Hastings is up here, uh, who was in Texas for a number of years. We've had uh, people move to New Orleans and outside of there to California, numerous to California. Hunter Hammett and others are out in California. So there are already Texans around the country who were involved in Texom or came up through the ranks as Texom was happening. Recently, you rebranded and entered into a new arrangement with the Texas Wine Competition, which is now the Texom Wine Competition. How did that come about, and why did you make that choice? Well, going back to Fred Dame and his influence on Drew and I and his mentorship, Fred, as I said, was a big supporter of Texom from the very beginning. And for two years, Texom moved to Austin. It was founded in Dallas, but uh, years three and four, we uh, went to Austin to four seasons there. While we were there, I can't remember which year it was. I think it was the second year. Uh, Rebecca Murphy, who was the then the owner of the Dallas Morning News wine competition, approached Fred and said, you know, I she was living in Seattle, still is. She'd been doing the competition at that point for 28 years or so, having founded it in a visionary way. I mean, she just, it's amazing to me that she saw the opportunity she did to help the business. And she said, you know, I'm looking at how to create a succession. And Fred said, these are the two guys you need to talk to. And so Rebecca gets credit for introducing Drew and I, but she, she also, uh, gets credit for some of the work we've done since then because uh, we met the next morning in the bar appropriately enough at the four seasons and uh, Rebecca tells it as Drew and I were looking rather haggard and she and Fred proposed this idea and at that point we started talking about how it would happen we worked with Rebecca for four or five years eventually transitioning the name to the Dallas Morning News and Taxon Wine Competition under Rebecca's ownership Uh, with Drew and I being co-producers. And then just before the competition in 2014, we signed the papers to buy the competition. Uh, At that point, we decided to rebrand it. We weren't sure that a local newspaper was the appropriate choice for the competition. Uh, We did go into discussions, but we uh, felt that we could rebrand it in a way that could make it relevant uh, to Solmier's. And so we put the Texom name on it. It's now the Texom International Wine Awards. We ran it for the first time this past February in February of 2015 with Rebecca still heavily involved as a mentor, as a guru. She's a consultant to us and much more than that. And it was, uh, by all accounts, a success. So hopefully we'll keep doing it. Why move into wine competitions? What's the upside of that? For wines, for actual wines. Right. So so we now run a sommelier competition in the background at Texom, and we also have the wine competition. I think those two things uh, are related in the fact that we're trying to move the industry forward. We're trying to help the industry. We always have. That was a, the idea of Texom from the very beginning. We saw an opportunity with this, with this wine competition to really help move the industry forward and, and highlight some 
wines that maybe weren't highlighted in all areas to give some validity to wines that maybe were getting overlooked and to really just celebrate the fact that great wine is made around the world. Whether you buy into the idea or not, there has been some speculation in the press that wine critics may be diminishing in popularity or influence. And at the same time, with the rise of things like Twitter and other social media, those those pieces of social media, those media are very personal in, in a lot of ways because to me it's the coffee house atmosphere of the 1800s where I can say, you know what, Levy just put on a photo or a, a tweet, put up a tweet about a wine that he particularly likes. I haven't ever heard of that wine. I'm going to research it simply because I know you and and I respect your palate or I respect I like, like that you got my name right because I think a lot of people in Texas would be like Levi just put a wine up on him. That, that, that has happened. <laughs> Trust me, that's happened more than once. But, but, uh, but you know that's the that's the way that we communicate nowadays, and so it's a much more personal way of communicating, even though we may be thousands of miles apart. I think the wine competition combines the best of both those worlds because Drew and I try to make sure that the judges we have are ones that are are respected and well well thought of as far as their palace by number of people. And at the same time, it does provide while not a score, a medal validation. Drew and I feel like that all medals are important, which is something that I think the competition industry has not always done a good job of promoting. But if you win any medal at that competition, it means something. The judges that we have are phenomenal and we couldn't do it without them. So a changing reference point in the country about how people decide to take advice, what it is they're looking for in terms of making a buying decision. Hopefully, and really going along with what's happening already, but in a parallel way. So as millennials start having more influence over decisions, the decisions that millennials seem to be making are more personal and more experiential. And so the wine competition to us, while it does give medals, is really more about the experiential and the personal. And so we want to use that as a framework to move forward, but in a parallel way to, to what's going on on social media. Because it seems like TechSom is also that. Like it's something it that happens to people in a place. It's it an is. experiential conference as opposed to you know uh, something else. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very much an experiential conference. We looked at ways to enhance that and we found a lot of them uh, you know uh, as i said that first conference we didn't have a lot of opportunities outside just the seminars but i was very happy to hear uh, a writer tell me that he really enjoyed texom and one of the things that impressed him was even the networking events that sh- should traditionally have been sales promotion events were educational he said, even your sponsors in the various outlets that are very much sponsorship still framed it as an educational experience for people. And I think that that's one of the great things about Texom is that we try to keep it educational as opposed to marketing promotion. So you've been in the same sommelier role for 13 years. Yes. You came up in a time before sommeliers were everywhere and before it was maybe something that people decided they wanted to do at a young age. Yes. And like your own career is something that happened sometimes later for your generation where people said, oh, well, maybe that's an, a possibility. I hadn't thought about that being a possibility before. Yeah, it, it was not something that in kindergarten in Manny, Louisiana, when somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? You said, I want to be a sommelier. I mean, it just didn't happen. So... Uh, who knows? I've wanted to be a writer and then sometime when I was young, an astronaut, and I don't know, all sorts of other things. But, you know, I think it's a, it sounds like a grand plan when you say, okay, well, there's a international trade and finance degree, and then there's a culinary degree, and then there's wine certifications because I have a few of those. In truth, it was a long and winding road that worked out quite well. And I think the patience to, to, let that play out has been a big part of my career. You know, um, there've been numerous times that I've had other offers and there've been times when I've been encouraged to do other things outside of four seasons. And I've stuck with four seasons simply because they have allowed me huge opportunities and 
I think that patience has been a key to what I've done otherwise. So how do you see, because I think you have a real insider ring seat to so much young talent coming through. And at the same time, you know both the educational organizational structure that they might take advantage of, and you also know so much of the supplier side because all right. of those are parts of what you do. They are. So how do you see the job market for sommiers evolving in five to ten years now that people maybe at a younger age have decided, hey, James Tidwell's got a cool job. I might like to have a job like that myself. What's going to happen five years out, ten years out, fifteen years out? What's the job outlook going to be? How's that picture going to look? I think that comes from two different aspects. So one aspect is what about the consumer and what are they wanting? Because if you're saying that consumers are experiential and uh, really going by personal recommendations, then how does that affect the sommelier? Because is the sommelier coming across as a critic or is a sommelier coming across as a friend? And so I think the core of what we do, hospitality, is going to become even more important. It's, yes, the sommelier job is something of a celebrity job at this point, at least in some areas and in some context. But at the same time, I don't think it is a, a position that plays the role of the critic well. I think it is a position that should be about the role of the friend, the, the one helping you as you're selecting wines. And so I see that if we maintain as a, as a profession our role as hospitality professionals, making people feel welcome in our restaurants, getting to know them, understanding what they want, we will remain relevant for a very, very long time. And at the same time, going to your point about being a bit more of a glamorous, you know, a, a celebrity profession, something that people might want to get into because of the notoriety it's achieved lately. There are people who will get into it, I think, who don't understand the profession and, and its history. And so I think what you do and what some others are doing to really record the history of our profession is, is hugely important. I follow the publishing industry a lot. There's a lot of information right now on books holding their own, finally, against uh, some other forms of media. I see a lot of uh, sommeliers nowadays reading a lot more history, reading a lot more about the context of wine rather than the facts about wine. And I think all of that's going to be important for our future. And how do you see the next evolution of what you're doing with Texom? What's the next challenge for you? What is it that you'd like to see happen? We would certainly like to see growth in terms of quality always. That's the first thing. We don't we never intended Texom to be a big conference. And so being bigger is not necessarily what we're after. It may be a byproduct of hopefully being better, but not for the sake of being bigger. We want to do some things that are, uh, I guess you could say, uh, corollaries to Texom. So we want to turn the Texom program into a magazine this year, a full-fledged magazine, that would take the ideas being presented in seminars and use them as a jumping-off point for some other learning opportunities, but through print. And so uh, since we already have a program, we figured why not make a magazine out of it with some more educational opportunities for people. So we're going to do that this year. It'll be a one-off. We'll see what happens. Who knows? But we'd like to do that. Uh, we'll continue growing the wine awards as part of the overall Texan brand. Uh, they were up 30% entries this year over last year. Hopefully it'll continue to grow. Uh, I'm not sure I know of many wine competitions, if any, in the U.S. that have 92 selections of Greek wines entered into them. So what we would like to do there is find more wines that aren't imported and be a service to distributors and importers and recognizing great wines around the world that may not be available in the States at this time. Things like that. They're not necessarily giant leaps. They're small steps in several different directions. But we look at ourselves as a as providing services to the to the industry, whether it's sommeliers or suppliers or importers or distributors, anybody. Ten years of Texom events, a lot of growth in that time. Looking back, what are you most proud of in that decade period? One of the things that I'm most proud of is the fact that in a business where there's a lot of competition, Texom brings together everybody. Major distributors who are rivals outside of Texom come to Texom, support Texom, 
work together to support taxonomies. Four of the major education certification organizations for wine are co-presenters of this conference starting last year and con continuing this year into 2015. I couldn't be more proud of that. That That is what Taxonomics is about. It's about bringing together the industry. And I look at the way that it's begun to attract people from uh, an international audience now, not just a national audience. Certainly I was happy about the national audience, but now I'm attracting an international audience. And I hope that that is because it's remained high quality and unbiased. And, and by unbiased, I don't mean not having opinions, but we don't take sponsored seminars. We don't take people's money just because they have money. We try to make sure that we're providing a service to our audience. And that's the key. And all of those people involved have helped us do it. I mean, it's the community coming together. I've often, I say it all the time, if everybody wasn't involved who is involved, it wouldn't be a success. It's not about two people or five people or the Texas community even. It's about everybody who's involved. James Tidwell, he's part of a group that's involved with Texom, and he's also the wine director at the Four Seasons in Dallas. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. James Tidwell of the Four Seasons and also Texom. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.